0: Bird flying high, you know how I feel Sun in the sky, you know how I feel Breeze drifting by, you know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new light Free, you know how I feel Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel It's a new dawn, it's a new day It's a new life for me Feeling good Hello and welcome
1: to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, October 24th, 2021 My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today, we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael's a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of CastAlbumReviews.com. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at FollowSpotPhoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> Hello. So we're going to start off with the show uh, uh, that Michael and Peter have seen, which, uh, on, on the face of it, Uh, I think to myself, uh, a a show about um, (laughs) a a financial services firm that started out as a grain trader in the 1800s, and I think to myself, what could be more boring than this? Then again, on on the face of it, uh, Hamilton sounds like a pretty boring (laughs) topic to discuss. So Peter and Michael have seen the Lehman Trilogy. Uh, So Peter, why don't you get to start off with that?
2: Well, I have to say what surprised me most is um, its pedigree from the Park Avenue Armory. I was uh, supposed to go last April, and at the very last minute, I couldn't. But the Park Avenue Armory is an enormous space, and um, certainly I've seen many wonderful things there with a million people in them. Um, So I expected the Lehman trilogy to be filled with human beings, and I was really surprised to find out it was a three-character play. Mm. Um, Well, that's not fair. It's a three-actor play. It's not a three-character play, because Lord knows they play um, many, 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 many characters and it's done in the style of story theater. If you're not familiar with story theater... What it is is that um, people just speak directly to you and summarize what's going on, and then z- zoom right into dialogue as they talk to other people, and then come out of it again and do some narration, and then go back to dialogue, and so on and so forth. So I was very surprised um, because certainly when uh, three people came out at the beginning on a very elaborate set, and by the way, that set really dances. Peter Stone used to say during the uh, years of the British musicals. Um, now the geography is in the scenery. And uh, Mm -hmm. what we have here is uh, I'd love to know the person who, um, the people who are involved with actually moving the set around. (laughs) There's a lot of set moving around. One set, unit set, but nevertheless, it moves. And directing this play must have been so, so, so difficult. Uh, Sam Mendes did a phenomenal job in having people go through doorways, come out in another uh, part of the set, and the set is moving at the same time. Uh, it, It really is choreography. But anyway, um, so three people come out and they start talking to us and all that. And I'm waiting for other people to come out. I haven't looked at the playbill. I got there just in time. And I'm fully expecting uh, the stage to be. Well, that's it. However, the three people are terrific. Um, Simon Russell Beale, Adam Godley, and Adrian Lester. Adrian Lester may be one that you know. uh, If you remember that famous production of Company uh, done in London um, where – a scene was added where Bobby um, was propositioned by um, a gay guy. And um, because of course, there's been a lot of issues about that over the years, whether or not Bobby's gay. So um, that's what happens. You know, the irony for me, uh, this is a very small detail I'll grant you, but um, one of the brothers dies very young and it's, it reminded me of the Schubert brothers. I mean, you know, it's very funny. They were three brothers too, and they came from nowhere. Uh, granted, not um, not uh, uh, Bavaria. Uh, they came from Syracuse, and that's where the title of "The Boys of Syracuse" comes from, from that musical. Um, but uh, still, one of the brothers died very young, and the other two had to take over and and do what they had to do. So, um, so this is the story about the rise and rise and rise and rise and fall and fall and fall and fall. The lame uh, brothers and the people uh, who went through them. I will have to say that I did think the first act was magnificent beyond belief, and I don't think the second and third acts really got to that point again. Um, Still, I found this a very worthwhile uh, production and a very worthwhile effort, but it is sort of sad when you think the, the other two acts are going to be just as good as the um, first act. And while I won't call it second act trouble or third act trouble, yes, three acts, because this is a three and a half hour uh, enterprise, which, by the way, I think goes by very, very quickly for, for that uh, much time um but the you do get a little disappointed when um it it doesn't reach the uh, fever pitch that does in the first act and i guess it's always more interesting to um to see people rise um and of course they rise in the second act too to be fair but um but still uh i do find this a very worthwhile effort and um i'm very glad i went and if i were invited back i'd go again okay so, uh, Michael, what's your
1: thoughts on the Lehman Trilogy?
3: Yeah, I had a far different reaction. I, I was tremendously disappointed, uh, primarily, I think, because it w- this play was not about what I thought it was going to be about. I just assumed uh, that the reason they were focusing on the Lehman Brothers was because of the collapse of the company, in, uh, which mm. was primarily – Brought about by the whole subprime mortgage scandal um, but and 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 when this place started and the and the that incredible unit unit set uh was revealed of this you, it's a lot of people have referred to it as a glass cube uh, it looks like one of those ultra ultra modern very very high floor uh office spaces in manhattan uh with uh the, there's a cyclorama in back of it that that uh has all different kinds of projections on it during the show but at the beginning and at and, and the end and some other parts it's uh it's a manhattan skyline basically and you can see uh other tall build tops of other tall buildings in the in the distance and so i uh, naturally assumed that a lot of the content of the play would be about the collapse of the company. But I would say that about three minutes of it (laughs) is about that. Uh, The very beginning it's used as a, a, as a framing device for the first like 45 seconds of the play. And then it comes back at the very, very end. Uh, They borrow a, um, that device that, that seems to be popular lately of, uh, and I won't, say too much to give it all uh, to give too much away but at the very end suddenly all these other people appear on stage um uh whereas the bulk of the play is only three actors as peter mentioned and uh that's very effective uh, i think everyone would agree it's very effective when suddenly uh there are all these other actors where before there were only three. But uh one could say it's kind of a cheap effect. Um uh, uh you know, maybe not cheap in terms of finances, although I, I can't imagine they pay them much. But uh I you know, it's uh, I don't think that's it was, it was very well earned um is what I thought. Uh I, I so I I was very, very surprised that this was really not about the collapse of the firm almost at all. Uh, It i found it um i actually peter I, I found it more interesting as it went along oh. because mm-hmm. um yeah uh because i i thought that when they got to the for example when they got to the the wall street crash of 1929 that was a very interesting section and then uh there were some other things but it is uh it's a portrait of this family and how uh I guess how from the beginning they were just making money <laughs> was their primary goal, and, and everyone else be damned. Uh, it turns out that they, they established themselves uh, during the Civil War, when the Civil War was still going on, uh, by dealing with slave owners and eventually selling cotton. <laughs> uh, you know, you can't get much more complicit uh, mm-hmm. in the sins of slavery than, than by selling cotton. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and then during the leading up to the crash of 29, like so many other, uh, companies, they, they, their, their methods were were questionable. Uh, but then I, I just felt that the whole subprime mortgage thing was hardly dealt with at all. And, and I, and I, you know, I can understand the the point of, Focusing on the family just as a as a story of immigrants who wind up wound up doing incredibly well and then eventually uh, their their business was destroyed but there 's lots of other stories about immigrants uh, aren 't there so i i, I don 't know why they focused on the Lehman brothers if they weren 't going to focus on the collapse of the of the whole thing, which I think would have been far more interesting to me anyway. Uh, uh, so that, that was a, a big, big disappointment. I, I find that even though these are three of the greatest actors who ever set foot on stage, uh, Simon Russell Beale, Adam Godley, and Adrian Lester, uh, that the story theater thing did start to actually become kind of tiresome, especially in a three hour and, 20-minute play uh uh, so that was another strike against it as far as i was concerned um uh what else uh the uh the direction was very fluid certainly uh but since i don't like the whole concept I, i guess that that didn't impress me as much as it would have otherwise um uh there were odd things about it uh the uh, the actors basically use their natural British accents when they're doing the narrating, uh, and then sometimes they they put on other accents for other characters. But sometimes they don't. For instance, in the beginning, it seemed to me that they were doing everything in their Brit accents, even when they were playing other characters. Until suddenly, uh, Adam Godley. Uh, came out as, I guess, a guy who, um, who who runs a railroad in the South somewhere, and he's approached by the Lehman brothers who want to take over the railroad. And he uh, then he suddenly uh, lapsed into a, a very good Southern American accent. But I was like, well, why why suddenly for this one character? And then it was very scattershot after that, you know, when they're playing children or when they're playing women, uh, the way they – they uh, portray them vocally. Uh, I, I didn't think there was any consistency there. And and I thought that was uh, very disconcerting. Oh, by the way, here's a, just a fun little sidelight. Uh, one of the characters in the play is Governor Herbert Lehman. Uh, who eventually became governor of New York. And for many years, I used to ride on the Staten Island ferry that bore his name. Ah. <laughs> so it was kind of fun for me to see him. Um, on stage portrayed on stage. Um, but I, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't understand the point of this play and I really would have loved to have seen those three actors in anything else. Was my feeling? Uh, Laura Collins use of the times, uh, although she overall liked the, the production and the play much more than I did, she wrote something that it kind of, uh, uh, it mirrors what I felt. Uh, she wrote, The Lehman trilogy exists because of the cascading financial disaster that extinguished Lehman Brothers in 2008 yet its perspective is very much from the top of that deluge any harm bucketing down below is at best an abstraction just as in as it is in 1929 when the play shows us suicides of despairing stockbrokers but none of the pain radiating through lower social strata and slavery the founder of the family's feast is kept in soft focus off to the side and she ended by saying the primary reason to see the Lima trilogy then is to witness the superb beale godly and lester in their feats of storytelling and to conspire with them in imagining the place tarnished if not truly vanished world so i certainly agree with with that part um i this was not the first time i've seen adrian lester on stage i saw him in a production of as you like it um, oh, yeah, as as Rosalind, I believe. Yeah, uh, quite a few years ago. And I think that was at Bam. Is that right? Does that sound right?
2: Um, I started in Boston.
3: Oh, OK. Uh, and uh, but that was the only time I'd seen him before. And Adam Godley and Simon Russell Beale. This is only their third Broadway credit for each of them. So so in that sense, anything that brings these people back to Broadway is great. But I, I personally wish that it had been in something else. All right.
1: So it was interesting what you said, Michael, about the immigrant story, because I immediately thought of uh, rags. Yeah, and, or ragtime. And ragtime yeah. and things, but insofar as what they could could have done instead. Um, and I, it's interesting to see these things happen side by side, especially, uh, uh, you know, in ragtime, the story of father, he he could have been a Lehman brother. You know, Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. (laughs)
1: although although he did sell fireworks and other accoutrements of uh, patriotism. (laughs) So, uh, but uh, interesting take on the Lehman Brothers. I I guess, Michael, Michael you you don't watch much television. Have you seen – Billions, the television show Billions, because no. that sort of focuses on the, uh, uh, the world of finance and the ethics there. I-, I wonder if somebody will make that, but I'm not sure that, uh, you know, will the Broadway audience be interested in going to see a uh, subprime mortgage lender crash play? <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. uh, and at, at the end, you know, Bro- Broadway and Lehman have the same thing in common, that they have to make money. So, So, Michael, you went over to the uh, Giggle Theatre Group's production of Mrs. Warren's Profession on Theatre Row. Tell us, what did you think about it?
3: Well, this was the opposite experience. I I didn't expect much from it because I had only seen one production of this George Bernard Shaw play previously, and that was the Roundabout Theatre production some years ago with Cherry Jones. And... um, Honestly, that was my first experience of the play and only experience of it until very recently. I had never read it and never seen any other production. So I was really judging the play only on that production. And I really didn't like it. I, I thought it just missed missed the boat somehow. And it seemed to me that a lot of the issue was the play itself, not just the production. But uh, this um, so I, I, I didn't I didn't really expect too much from this Gingold theatrical group production a a very uh small intimate off-Broadway production at Theatre Row um and also the Gingold group I think they used to do um they did they didn't used to do full productions uh they used to do more readings isn't that correct? Mm -hmm. that's right yeah but this is they're moving on yeah 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 they Mm -hmm. really are so I didn't I didn't expect it to be as fully staged and costumed etc as it was Uh, I did want to go anyway because I very much wanted to see Robert Cuccioli in the role of Sir George Crofts and Karen Ziemba in in the title role of Mrs. Warren Uh, but I wasn't that familiar with the other people in the cast so I, I didn't know what i would find there but it was just so well done very very well directed by david staller very well acted by those two people um also uh in the cast david lee h-u-y-n-h H-U-N-H, as frank gardner uh alvin keith as prayed And Raphael Nash Thompson as Reverend Samuel Gardner. But the amazing thing was this absolutely incredibly talented, beautiful young woman named Nicole King, who gave an amazing, unforgettable performance in the role of Mrs. Warren's daughter, Vivi, who arguably is... um, arguably the central character of the play. She's a very interesting character, a a, a typically uh, George Bernard Shaw character of a very strong woman uh, at a time when maybe... uh, playwrights weren't writing a lot of characters like that. Uh, she's very, very smart. She's a math whiz. <laughs> uh, can you imagine? Uh, and, uh, and, and this is set in 1912, by the way, uh, she's a math whiz and she's, um, very obviously a very independent woman. And, uh, her relationship with her mother is uh, somewhat uh, distant and somewhat strained, but, but you can see she very w- much wants to be her own person. Uh, and uh she is um shocked when it comes out uh what exactly mrs warren's profession has been mm-hmm. and that is in a word well prostitution and uh she started out as Kind of a prostitute, and then became basically a madam uh, and of course, this is kept under wraps until it isn 't and and it was needless to say kind of shocking <laughs> the kind of shocking extremely shocking to audiences back when when Shaw wrote this play and it was originally produced but Nicole King was absolutely wonderful uh, her first of all, her Brit accent was so great that i I assumed she must be. British herself. Uh, But no, here is her bio from her website. Nicole King is an actor based in New York City and a graduate of the Mason Gross School of the Arts Mm -hmm. at Rutgers University, Mm -hmm. born of a Belgian and Finnish mother and a Nigerian father in Minneapolis. (laughs) Nicole started her training at St. Paul Conservatory for Performing Arts with her professional acting debut at the Children's Theatre Company in 2009. Since then, Nicole has had the pleasure of living and training in London. So there you go. Uh, London, England at Shakespeare's Globe where she nurtured a deep passion for studying classical text. She is a SALT Best Leading Actress Award winner for her performance in the world premiere of Possessing Hamlet. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm sorry. Possessing Harriet (laughs) uh, at Syracuse stage in 2018. Nicole most recently worked on King Lear as Cordelia, starring Andre De Shields. She is represented by Wolf Talent Group. And I, I am going to tell you, you should go to see this if only for her performance. Uh, I, I was really blown away. Uh, but on top of that, you're going to get a wonderful performance by Karen Ziemba in a role very different from anything I've ever seen her do before. And a great performance by Robert Cuccioli, who's always great in everything. Uh, I Really, my... my hat is off to david staller uh for putting this together for casting it so well and uh and so diversely but brilliantly and and for the direction of it uh it's it's absolutely i will be trying to go to see all of their productions in future
2: david is astonishingly talented but the funny story um, i have is that um Bob Cuccioli lives nearby and we run into each other all the time. And I said, mm-hmm. oh, I'm coming on uh, Sunday, the 23rd, which of course is um, no, 24th, which is today. And um, and he said, oh, all right, then we'll make sure that performance is good and we'll suck at all the others. <laughs> well, apparently that's not true. <laughs> apparently not. <laughs> no, it's
3: not true. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: Bob is so funny. So that 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 uh, that that's quite a cast for a theater production. So it wow. is, mm-hmm. it
3: is. And this, and have you all heard, I'm sure you have about this upcoming, very soon upcoming production of mornings at seven. Yeah. Oh, yeah. With an amazing, incredible you cast off Broadway yeah. at theater at St. Clements. Right. Right. You know, yeah, play. you know, we're all, we're all thrilled that Broadway's reopening, but please yeah. continue to pay attention to oh, off Broadway.
0: Yeah. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: So that is,
1: uh, as we mentioned, on Theatre Row. It's playing through November 20th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Great. Uh, all right. So uh, uh, last week or the week before, I'm not sure, I don't recall, Peter talked about Thoughts of a Colored Man, and I, I, I saw it this week. Um, and I just wanted to add in my thoughts about this this play that is about seven black men that are in a in a neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, one of them is new to the neighborhood all of them have lived there the other six have lived there for a long time and these monologues and scenes uh, really really capture a, uh, a a narrative that uh uh, it was funny because it, it, it had me both in despair and hope and exhilaration at the same time.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I understand that. Yeah. Uh,
1: and and I, I, I can't stop thinking about this show and I can't uh, help but but wonder if this show could be seen by so many people, would it? Would it Shed light and and help us out of the uh, the situation, the morose that we're in these days. And hmm. I think that, that that's the that's the goal of theater. I think is uh, aside from what I said before about the Lehman Brothers and making money. We <laughs> we we do we watch theater and we do theater to reflect upon our society. And and Thoughts of a Color Band really achieves this. And I hope that uh, folks get out to. Get out to see it. It's just such an outstanding outstanding cast. And, um, and it, it's the type of thing that um, uh, if you don't see it, I'm hoping that this will have a life in a lot of regional theaters if you don't see it on Broadway. Uh, and I hope that it gets picked up and seen in a lot of other venues. Uh, and it's playing at the Golden through March 20th. So, Peter, you saw, is this a room? Uh, Tell me what you thought about this uh, FBI transcript.
2: Yeah, that's what it is. Um, It literally is a transcript uh, of what happened to this woman who uh, worked in a a very uh, important job uh, and um, felt a little uh, (laughs) skeptical of what was going on and did leak some information. What we see are... um, two, then a third uh, FBI guy show up at her uh, house and asking a lot of pointed questions. Now, the real question becomes, why doesn't she immediately say, "Uh, excuse me, I'm going to talk to my lawyer? Um, uh, They don't uh, do anything with Miranda rights, which may not be necessary with the FBI. I don't know. Is that something that doesn't happen? You have to be a police officer. Uh, I don't know. But <clears throat> these were questions I had while watching. Uh, is this a room? Because um, if indeed she were to say, uh, I, I want my lawyer, um, don't expect anything from me to, to be said. Well, then under those circumstances, <laughs> there'd be no play and there'd be no transfer script, um, at least not at that point in time. But um, she does decide to talk. And I guess I'm guessing here her feeling is that if I talk What will happen is that they will assume I'm innocent because I'm not afraid to talk. That's the only rationalization I can give whatsoever for um, why this would um, very much happen. But it does happen and um, that she does talk and she gets herself deeper and deeper and deeper. And of course, I'm not criticizing the FBI men for this, but they ask her a lot of questions that they already know the answers to. And they want to see what she's going to say. And eventually, during the course of the play, which is only about a little more than an hour, um, they do say, um, well, what would we, what would you say if I told you that I knew already that blah, blah, blah. So um, that, of course, really frightens her. And as time goes on, she really realizes um, that she's really in deeper trouble than she ever suspected. Uh, partly because um they have not put all their cards on the table, and when you come right down to it, why should they so um also, the direction is very fine too, because the body language that these guys use i mean when they really zero in on her, they have virtually nose to nose with her, their arms are akimbo, and they 're nose to nose with her, and they don 't give her any space um because they 're literally and figuratively closing in mm. so. So um, so it's very, very galvanizing. Um, this is um, the word taught, T-A-U-T, not like carefully taught, um, but this show is carefully taught, T-A-U-T, though. Um, it, really, uh, this is one of those experiences where uh, you could uh, tape a sprint commercial in the house because you could hear a pin drop um, because everybody was just so galvanized. And of course, part of it has to be that when we go to a play like this, we assume that the person is being harassed and the person is innocent and all that. And so it's impossible to watch something like this and not say to yourself, this could happen to me. Um, it, it, because any one of us uh, could be a suspect in anything. Uh, we, you know, Leo Frank the poor soul, you know, you know and, and was memorialized and parade um, seemed to have been innocent and look where it got him. So um <clears throat> So Emily Davis is magnificent, magnificent um, as the um, oppressed or the guilty party or the Patriot, depending on how you look at it. We do find out at the end what happens to her. But um, and Pete Simpson is really marvelous. Is one of the um, uh, gentlemen? Well, is that the right word? Uh, maybe it isn't. Um, con- everything considered, um, as the more aggressive, I would say, of the um, of the two um, FBI guys. But um, this is as as good a performance as that is, and certainly it really is. I don't want to um, give short shrift. To um, the new member of the cast. Um, this was done at the, at the Vineyard and it had a different actor playing the other FBI um, guy. And now Will Cobbs is uh, taking his place and he's magnificent as well. And Becca Blackwell plays the character of Unknown Male, uh, which um, there's an irony to that if, if you know anything about Becca Blackwell, but um, more to the point. Um, she just, uh, goes here, there and everywhere. She has very little to say, if anything. Um, and, uh, but she's snooping around and that's what's going on there. And of course, one of the complications is the fact that, uh, this woman has pets and she's very worried about them. What's going to happen if, um, so even that turns out to be a concern and that's a very human concern. Mm-hmm. Those of us who have had pets and, uh, and care about them deeply. And I guess that's virtually everybody. Um, this, this is a real problem too so there are a lot of complications and while a lot of us have to say wow i'm paying all that money for just an hour um again a little more than an hour but you get the point um (laughs) in a way you wouldn't want it to go on any longer because it really is quite the grilling Hmm
1: so uh I saw it as well, and uh, uh Peter, my question for you is <laughs> uh yeah can this be a best play with uh, a transcript
2: yeah what a good uh what a good point um and um do we actually get the actual people who experience this? <laughs> yeah, as, as the playwrights. Uh, you know. <laughs> Will the FBI win a Tony? <laughs> yeah, right. <you> know. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, um, it, it, that's that's a very tricky question, isn't it? Uh, you know, so uh, there there isn't um, any. I'm looking right now. There's no actual credit for a, a writer is there uh, nothing <laughs> just a
1: conceived <laughs> just a conceived by yeah and so. uh in, in the next couple of weeks we'll talk about Dana H uh which is playing sure. in rep in right. rep with it, yeah, uh, rep. is this a room and uh has a similar type of uh, uh of questions uh surrounding that but my experience here was that this was this was a totally gripping thing and gripping is a good word yeah uh and it, it was interesting to me because I uh, some of the reviews I had read after I had seen it uh, made me think that I want to go back again because uh, they, there are pieces here that I didn't take into account that I was like, th- this was a, a, a 25-year-old woman, mm.
0: uh,
1: you know, a, a couple of years uh, out of the services. She didn't go to college and uh, being questioned uh by experienced fbi agents and she had no representation as, as you pointed out peter mm. and it, it had to be incredibly intimidating i mean it, it it was uh it was played for the drama a drama by uh emily davis um and certainly was outstanding she was emily davis was mm. outstanding uh we don't know if that's actually what reality winner had Gone through. Um,
2: that's a funny name. Th- so we should we should point out. Uh, reality winner is actually the name of the woman. Um, you, you wouldn't assume that. You would assume yeah. that it almost sounds like a racehorse, um, but mm. uh, that's her name. Uh, so if Reality Winner
1: also had those same emotions that uh, Emily Davis had during the, this production in real life, but still uh, up against experienced FBI agents. Um, that's a that's a very tough uh, road to hoe
2: it is and the other thing too is that um, these guys are constantly saying well you know we, we 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 believe you i mean we know we know that you don't mean any harm or anything they, they and they lull her into uh, that type of um, complacency because they they I, I'm, I'm sure there's nothing wrong you know that type of thing is happening all the time i'm sure there's nothing wrong but and then later you find out they know uh, mm-hmm. that, that they, as I say, they were holding their cards very close to their vest. And now when they come on the table, they're really revealed. In terms of that conception, um, yes, Tina Satter is the person who conceived it, but she's the one who directed it. So we're not sure if she's going to get a, any type of award for writing. Yeah. All right, that's another story. But for direction, she should be in the mix next year for all the awards. You, it's really very
1: interesting to me with the, the extreme difference between uh, very, very quiet scenes and then the cacophony of sound uh, in, in the various uh, mm-hmm. unseen people that were backing up trucks and doing investigations. And, and you never see these people on stage, but you hear the noise of it all happening at the same time Well, mm-hmm. uh, the character uh, or the real person reality winner is worried about her cat and her dog mm-hmm. and what you know other people... Uh you know, all she wants to do is make sure that this cat and the dog are are you know, not Mm -hmm. not uh abused And, and and abandoned. And abandoned exactly like that. And uh it this is a really fascinating uh show. Had I uh I didn't get to see it at the vineyard, I was invited and I didn't get down to see it in time. Um and I'm so glad that I'm, I got a chance to see it uh, mm-hmm. on Broadway. I, I'd imagine that if I had seen it at the Vineyard, I would have said, this is not a Broadway show, but I was, <laughs> here I am wrong again. So uh, what, what a oh, just excellent producing. I'm uh, so so glad that it, it made it through here. Cool. So this uh as we said uh at Room is playing at the Lyceum in repertoire
3: with uh, Dana H. I have a question for you guys on that yeah. note. I, I bearing in mind I haven't seen either of them yet. Um would it have been possible to do them mm-hmm. both as one <laughs> as one evening? Yeah. I think they're well, dramatically really? different topics.
2: Um <clears throat> Well, certainly there's going to be a lot of people who would feel that they would rather see two rather than one. And there are a lot of people who wouldn't because, um, that would make for a a substantially longer evening, um, perhaps right in the neighborhood of layman trilogy. But, um, but sure, that, that has got to be a question that everybody is asking because um, these shows do cost a lot of money. And um, getting more for your money is something that is very important to a lot of people, which is totally understandable, of course. Um,
3: what is so, the approximate later length of Dana H?
2: Same thing. They're both, both about 70. A hundred.
3: Is it really? It's, oh, I thought uh, it was much longer.
2: I thought they were both around 70. So um, I could be wrong. But. Um, um but uh, sure if if it's 100 then it, it um, I, I i have to correct myself because if it's 70 and 70 that's not um, so long but um but still um yeah I, I fully understand anybody who would um balk from seeing either one of these shows feeling that they're not getting their money's worth uh, which is um, so Ironically enough, um, a historical note here, um, I would think that um, it's really ironic that they're playing the Lyceum, where a repertory company was very, very successful in the 60s, um, the APA Phoenix, um, which gave birth to a lot of important productions. So uh, there's rep at the Lyceum again. doesn't happen often.
1: So I'm checking here, uh, you're correct, it, they, it's 65 to 70 minutes.
2: Well, uh, then, yeah, a case could be made that they yeah. could do them in one night, so.
3: I was just wondering in terms of the, uh, like, the sets, such as they are. Uh, I, it's a big blank uh, stage, really. Well, yeah,
2: okay. Dana, Dana H. has a set. It does uh, have a set, Yeah, okay. In fact... Um I, I was uh, postponed seeing Is This a Room? Because they said they were having trouble with a set. And um, obviously that um, was the Dane H set. Oh, okay, there's, okay. there's nothing to speak of in uh, Is This a Room?
1: Okay. All right, Michael. uh yes.
3: You ran outside.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And, I did. And you saw,
2: you saw a celebration
1: of the Tin Pan Alley Day. Uh, so tell us about this.
3: This was the most fantastic event that happened yesterday, uh, October 23rd, and I only recently found out about it. I I guess I had gotten an email about it and somehow misplaced it or didn't focus on it, but Tin Pan Alley Day celebrating, uh, well, primarily the fact that uh, this row of buildings on West 28th Street, uh, 47 to 55 West 28th Street, has been landmarked uh, as Tin Pan Alley, or, or part of tin, tin Pan Alley, which, first of all, I'm going to admit, I didn't know that that's where Tin Pan Alley was. Uh-huh. Um, uh, I thought it, I don't know, I guess I thought it was elsewhere, maybe closer to the present-day theater district. But as someone pointed out to me, um, it makes perfect sense for Tin Pan Alley to have been down there in the early years of the 20th century, because that's where all the music publishers were. Uh, And so that makes perfect sense. Anyway, this was a great, great event uh, that was hosted by our friend Clea Blackhurst and this fellow Robert Lamont. And the performers included uh, the opening act (laughs) was Vince Giordano and the Nighthawks, uh, and then uh, followed by Marilyn May. So you can imagine what level of talent we're talking about here. Marilyn May with Billy Stritch at the piano, and then Billy did um, his own set of songs that had been published exactly a hundred years ago, <laughs> uh, and the crowd just just loved that. Uh, Natalie Douglas, our, our our other friend, another uh, former podcast guest along with Marilyn. uh, And then uh, Anita Gillette, (laughs) Um, the the great Anita Gillette with Paul Greenwood at the piano. And she was there, um, uh, well, primarily because of her connection with Irving Berlin, who, of course, is one of the great Tin Pan Alley figures of all time, uh, because she worked with him directly on Mr. President. And she, of course, sang the Secret Service makes me nervous from that mm-hmm. show. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also had Eric Eve Garcia and Eric Comstock and the Tada Youth Theater Ensemble and Aaron Lee Battle, Steve Ross, Jim Brochu, Willie Falk from Miss Saigon. Uh, and I believe I didn't stay, I wasn't able to stay till the very end, but I think the last act was Jill O'Hara uh with Steve Ross at the piano, so it was really really great um highlights uh, included Marilyn of course uh natalie uh natalie um sang a song by Jay rosamond johnson who do you do you know who he is he was um uh, a great african american composer performer uh choral director back in the day. I know him primarily for he was in the original cast of Porky and Bess um, mm-hmm. as the lawyer Frazier. And uh, he also did the he, – he's on the complete recording of Porky and Bess, and he also is the choral director, uh, I believe, for that complete re- recording. Uh, he was an amazing Renaissance figure and uh, also a songwriter, as I mentioned. And the the uh, two songs you would probably know that he co-wrote, one is Under the Bamboo Tree, <laughs> Mm -hmm. Uh, which wound up in the movie of Meet Me in In St. Louis, Louis, of course. Uh, But then also he co-wrote with his brother, James Weldon Johnson, uh, Lift Every Voice and Sing, which apparently has just been named the official hymn uh, of this country, Uh, which, you know, I mean, you might get into arguments about, separation of church and state. But outside of that, uh, it's a great honor for him, obviously. And I got the I had the pleasure of speaking with his granddaughter uh, who was there at this event. So that was that was really a thrill for me. But also Natalie um, Douglas sang one of his songs and then she sang uh, Love for Sale, which do you know the background on on that song? Uh, It it, was is from the 1930s. The 1930 Broadway show, The New Yorkers. New Yorkers
2: that I know. Yeah.
3: All right. And originally it was sung by a woman named Catherine Crawford, uh, a white performer. And I don't know how it fit into the plot at that point. But uh, Love for Sale is about mm. is sung by a prostitute.
2: prostitute yeah. We
3: mm. seem to have a prostitution theme here today yeah. on, on mm. <laughs> uh, uh, but so uh, it was sung by her as a as a white woman, as a prostitute, and it created a scandal. And so Porter <laughs> shifted the setting of the song to the Cotton Club in Harlem, where it was sung by uh, an African-American, Elizabeth Welch. Mm-hmm. And then it was okay. Uh, Nat, uh, Natalie said it was sung by Adelaide Hall. So uh, I'm going to have to double check if she was incorrect or if this... Uh, Wikipedia entry that I'm reading is incorrect about Elizabeth Welch or maybe uh, Adelaide Hall replaced Elizabeth Welch or vice versa. But I'll have to check that out. But the point is that, you know, it was fine once they made it a bl- a black woman. Uh, so, you know, that, that speaks for itself. But this was a really, really, really amazing event. And we're including... Um, a little video of Marilyn May uh, that I took at the at the event, uh, I was so glad I was there. And it was right in the uh, it was in the what's called Flatiron North Plaza directly to the north of the Flatiron building. And uh, to have that as the backdrop, that historic place was was also amazing. Um, and the the speakers included uh, Eric Botcher, the New York City council mm-hmm. member elect our friend ken bloom uh and lots of other wonderful people like that so it was it was a singular event that i'm glad i didn't miss it i would have i would have never forgiven myself <laughs>
0: hmm.
3: mm-hmm. all right so as michael said we have the uh video
1: from michael's facebook page in the show notes if you want to get over there and take a look at marilyn may uh and um so I think that was it. I couldn't find really any other information about it. I don't don't, don't know if uh, anybody else has got videos, but we'll take a look for that and put that in the show notes as well. Right. So uh, I got over to the uh, the Booth Theater to see Freestyle Love Supreme. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time that I have seen Freestyle Love Supreme. And I was a bit underwhelmed. Oh. Have you guys seen it? No. No? So... Uh, yeah, I it was uh, you know we I've seen videos of it. I've never seen it live, but I've seen videos of it and things like that. Uh, maybe I just caught an off night, but this is uh, uh obviously the um uh not obviously, but this is the um um a hip hop improv group that Lin-Manuel and company and Tommy Kale and uh, others ha- uh, formed uh, many, many years ago and it played off Broadway and it's now playing on Broadway. Uh, and it was, uh, it, it, I've only seen one show live, but from the other videos that I've seen, it seems like it changes every single night. And that's because mm-hmm. the audience uh, provides inspiration for what's going to happen on stage. Uh, and while Everybody there was extraordinarily talented. Uh, it's all stuff that, you know, I, I'm not sure it's a Broadway show. It's a very entertaining. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not a Broadway show. It was mm-hmm. similar how I felt felt about Six. Very entertaining, not a Broadway show. Mm-hmm. But, um, but I have to tell you, uh, everybody around me was having the time of their life. Sure, sure. And mm-hmm. uh, people really, really love it. So it just wasn't for me, but... I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that it was bad. It just Mm -hmm. wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's Freestyle Love Supremes playing at the booth through January 2nd. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Uh, Peter, you got down to 33 Wooster to see the mother. So tell us about this.
2: Well, this is a Bertolt Brecht play that was uh, first done on Broadway during the 35-36 season. And um, it deals with a mother, as you would expect, um, whose son is very, very, very involved with um, being part of the Russian Revolution. Uh, The play starts in 1906, and he's um, going to do what he can to make sure that the Tsar is removed and that um, the um, Lenin-Trotsky people take over. Well, of course, the mother is aghast when she hears about this. Uh, She doesn't want the boat rocked at all. And to keep her son out of trouble, she is going to get involved to do something that um, she thinks is far too dangerous for him to be involved in. Well, the point is, little by little, she comes to see his point. And little by little, she becomes involved in the Russian Revolution as much as he. So um, that's the Brecht play, uh, based on a a story by Maxim Gorky. And here we are at the uh, Performance Garage, seeing a very different interpretation of it. Very different indeed. This is the Wooster Group. And uh, Elizabeth Comte has uh, done the staging. And um, it, it, this is the, uh, where Richard Foreman um, worked a lot. And um, he had this what's the word I'm looking for? This uh, policy of putting a, a string across the stage high up above the actors. Um, that was something he always did, and they're still doing that. Um, occasionally they do use it to hang things on, saying things, uh, words like prison, uh, where we do get to see um, a a few scenes. But um, they do play fast and loose with the uh, Brecht play to the point of which, even at the end, they actually say out loud, "Um, this next scene was not in Brecht's play. We've added it. And um, (laughs) so, frankly, um, because this is not a well-known Brecht play, I mean, the mother has hardly um, done as much as mother courage, uh, and needless to say, the three-penny opera. Um, I would have liked to have seen the real thing, and I felt that I wasn't seeing the real thing, that I was seeing a lot of bells and whistles. And um, the bells clanged a little too much for me, and the whistles were a little shrill. So um, I uh, I will admit that um, I have a tendency to be tradition-bound, but I don't really feel That after seeing the mother that i've really seen the mother that said uh what happens in it is very effective and at the end is a very 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 effective speech about um the son what happens to him and the ironies of what happens um to him so um it's uh about 80, 90 minutes, that type of thing, Worcester Street. um, Take the E to Spring and have a nice brisk walk, or um, um, or the F um, uh, to Lafayette, uh, Broadway Lafayette, and have a brisk walk. But, um, uh, But Kate Falk as the mother, sensational, whoa, a major performance. Really, really quite wonderful. There are only three other people in the play, and they're quite fine, too. But Kate Volk really has the uh, the text to work with, and she does it extraordinarily well.
1: All right. To uh, wrap up uh, for this morning, Peter, you got down to Kate May's stage to see The Last of the Red Hot Lovers, the Neil Simon classic. So tell us about it.
2: Well, uh, when this play was originally done, uh, James Coco played the lead and um, and, and, in three one act plays, in essence, dealing with a man who's um, now in his 40s and uh, married his high school sweetheart and as a result is um always wondering what he missed as a result of marrying a sweetheart uh, the only girl he's ever had uh, the only woman he's ever had in his life and so um you may recall years ago there was a fram oil filter commercial where um the point was that you (laughs) that you would you should really pay attention to your oil filters because the guy said you can pay me now Or you can pay me later, you know, meaning it's inevitable. So, I mean, that's the way it is with sex. You know, if you don't have it when you're a kid, you pay for it later, worrying what you missed. And that's what's going on. So he takes um, three different women over the course of uh, some time to um, his mother's apartment when he knows his mother is working. Uh, Now, this is 1969. And. Uh, As someone who's an old hotel employee, I know that there are plenty of people who used to come in and um, say, you got a room for tonight. We'd say, yes, um, may I see some identification? Oh, oh, um, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I I left it in the car. I'll be right back. And then you never saw them again. So that would it it seems now impossible if that was the case. But back in the 60s, that was the case. And so that would explain why. Why didn't he just go to a hotel? You know, that's the reason why. And and this guy is so nervous and so paranoid. Uh, Wonderfully played by Andy Prosky here, by the way, but Here's the point. In the original production, there were um, three different ladies, uh, Linda Laban, Marsha Rodden, I believe Doris Roberts. Um, and in the movie, um, three different uh, women as well. There was uh, Sally Kellerman, and uh, then there was Paula Prentice, and uh, then there was Renee Taylor. But here we have Rita Wren playing all three parts. And um, Rita is a marvelous, marvelous performer, and she really makes uh, the definition of the uh, three different women quite distinct. Andy Prosky is fabulous, too. Um, Just really wonderful uh, as this man who is consumed by guilt and paranoia and everything else that goes with that. He's just uh, such um, a a nervous guy. And uh, (laughs) Prosky's body language is is terrific in that. So Roy Steinberg, who directed and who's the artistic director of Cape May Stage, uh, really did a sensational job. Now, uh, Cape May is not nearby. Uh, It's uh, a, a good two hour, maybe two and a half hour drive from new york city and um it's at the very bottom of new jersey there ain't no more after that there's only the atlantic ocean and while this may not be prime time for cape may in the sense that um, it's not a good time to be on the beach it's such a charming little town with victoria houses that if you get there early and there are plenty of restaurants that are still open and will still accommodate you very nicely it's it's a terrific trip and i'm very glad i made it um it had been two years since i'd been to cape may stage and uh, that's much too long charming little theater in what used to be a courthouse and um, they've they've done a nice job with that and uh, credit to roy steinberg who really um, has done a a phenomenal job down there uh, keeping this theater alive that uh, was started by michael laird who died and they went through a few people before they could get somebody good and roy steinberg certainly has turned out to be good in a courthouse yeah, it doesn't look like a courthouse. Uh, it's a charming do, little building.
1: But could they do 12 Angry Men <laughs> to um, kill a
2: mockinger? with <laughs> <laughs> <And inherit> the <laughs> wind. <laughs> yeah, that was what I was just <laughs> going to mention. <laughs> so um, I guess they could. Maybe they will. Who knows? By the way, I have to tell you that um, uh, one time I went down there, and um, as a result of my review, they soundproofed the stage because mm. unfortunately um, there was a restaurant there's a restaurant right next door and you could hear the clanging silverware and people joyously laughing there was a dramatic moment in the play um, <laughs> this is years ago a dramatic moment you know here it is uh, you know, two foes are ready to really gnash teeth at each other and what do you hear Happy birthday to you! Happy birthday to you! From the restaurant, you know. So, um, so I'm glad they soundproofed it. That was not an issue the other night um, with last of the restaurant lovers, and I do believe the restaurant was open.
1: <laughs> All right, so that wraps it up for today. Before we get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link that way. Each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway. To be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us on Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to your final podcast, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at BroadwayRadio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including that wonderful video of Marilyn May that uh, Michael took at the uh, celebration of Tin Pan Alley Day. So, Peter, do you have an answer for last week's trivia?
2: Well, before we get to the question, let's ask. Let's add Stephen Brown to the ones who got Holden Mm -hmm. Boy last week. We recorded a day early last week, so Mm -hmm. he felt he had a little leeway. But we jumped the gun. So belated kudos to him. As for last week's question, what opening number from a 70s Tony losing musical could describe a certain group of people? I then gave the name of 20 people who were all fans of the theater. And so 20 fans is the opening number of The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, the 1979 musical that lost to uh, Sweeney Todd. Granted, the fans mentioned in that song referred to those machines that cool you when you're hot. But the words <laughs> other meaning applies too. <laughs> Juliet Green was the first to get it, followed by Steve Bell, Tony Janicki, Paul Witte, Brigadude, Joanna Abizi, Cheryl Hodges Stern, Deb Popple, Josh Israel, Jay Aubrey Jones, Jack Leshner, Sean Logan, Mike Meany, and the aforementioned Stephen Brown. So um, it's, that, that's almost 20 right there. This week's question. I not only want you to tell me what these five songs have in common, but I also want you to say why they're in this order. Putting on the Ritz, Young Frankenstein. At the Fountain, Sweet Smell of Success. Opposites, Skyscraper. Give Them What They Want, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. And Masculinity, La Cage Fold.
1: All right. If you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadreadradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us, uh, what do we have in this week's Musical Moment?
3: Well, I thought we should pay tribute to Leslie Brickus, who recently died. Um, And he was quite the talent as a composer and lyricist, and also uh, often a book writer and screenplay writer. His Broadway credits include Stop the World, I Want to Get Off?, and The Roar of the Grease Paint, the Smell of the Crowd. Uh, in both cases, he, uh, he wrote the music and lyrics in collaboration with Anthony Newley, and uh, also has the book credit. Uh, he wrote the lyrics for Pickwick uh, and, Vic- and the lyrics for Victor Victoria, which, of course, was a stage adaptation of the film. And the last Broadway credit uh, of a show in which he was directly involved was Jekyll and Hyde. Uh, as both the lyricist and the book writer, uh, but the last Broadway credit that, he, that he's listed as having on IBDB is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and I, for one, think that if they had used more of his material, <laughs> um, and specifically his songs in the show, uh, that it probably would have been more of a success i mean that wasn't that wasn 't its only problem by any chance i I really did not like that production at all, but uh that would have that would have at least given people something better to listen to um, the uh he really he, as i say he he really was multi talented and uh his work in films uh is quite phenomenal just just look up his work in films. Uh, he um, is uh, someone who uh, just just really just really put it out there, and was was really was really all over the place as far as uh, working with so many incredible people, and 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 really writing a lot of songs that, that have become part of our lives. So uh, we we opened the show today with Feeling Good. Feeling good uh, from the roar of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd, which, as I, I know, we've discussed that song previously <laughs> on the podcast because, aside from its place in that score, it has been used over the decades to sell various things uh, in commercials. And I wish, um, I wonder if Mr. Brickus ever. Uh, made any statement about this, but I wouldn't be surprised if he made more from that one song (laughs) than from, uh, from anything, any other single thing he ever wrote, because it seemed like it was everywhere. It's a beautiful song. Uh, I don't know if this show is ever going to be revived. It's a, it's a very symbolic show about uh, basically about the haves and the have nots. Uh, The haves are represented by this character named sir, originally played by Cyril Richard, and the have-nots by this little fellow named Cocky, uh, who was originally played by Anthony Newley. And it's all about their uh, relationship. But then, um, you know, there are other characters in the show. And at one point, uh, I'm going to read from the the notes on the cast album now. Enter now the Negro. Mm Mm-hmm. Played by Gilbert Price, who Mm -hmm. wants to play the game, cocky finding someone even more downtrodden than himself becomes an as overbearing as Sir. The Negro pours out the sadness and heartbreak of his frustration in feeling good. Uh, So I guess that's about this. uh, You know, this very odd phenomenon where people who sometimes people start off as liberals. And then as they uh, get more successful and earn a lot more money in their lives, they become conservatives. Uh, I mean, it's more complicated than that. But I think that's the kind of thing that uh, that they're talking about here, you know, and uh, people becoming less and less tolerant of other people as they grow older, which, of course, doesn't always happen
2: not by any Well, means. the other thing, too, is that uh, so many people who are victims, when they get the chance to be in power, that they do uh, victimize in the way that they were victimized. So, um, so that's part of it, too. By the way, um, this, the history of the show is very, very bizarre, because this mm-hmm. was a show that tried out in London. Elaine Page was in the cast, by the way. There's a lot of little girls in the cast um, as su- supporting people. Um, <laughs> it's not very clear why they need to be there, but they are there. But mm-hmm. it was a show that actually closed out of town. It didn't make it to london norman wisdom uh who many may know from walking happy um was the original leading man david Merrick came over to see it and said i'll bring it over anthony if you do the part so that's what happened there and Mm -hmm. uh, it wouldn't have happened otherwise this was a rare show that had its original cast album out before it came to broadway and uh, by the time it came to boston i knew this score inside out (laughs) and i think it is a magnificent score beyond belief and um And years later, after I learned about things about rhymes and scansion, um, I realized one of the reasons I think the score is so fabulous is because the the rules there really apply. But um, it it, the book has always been considered problematic. A lot of people compare it to Waiting for Godot, which I think was an inspiration. Um, But in terms of it working again, a few years ago, maybe three or four, Santino Fontana tried to do something with it Mm. up at Bard College, completely different book, completely with no relationship to the original. Mm. And it really became a Bernie Madoff story about Bernie Madoff, um, pulling the strings on various people. And um, and so um, I, I have to say that if I didn't know the show at all, I might have liked it more because I was just so discon- disconcerted that the songs were in completely different places. And that's so unfair to the show that Santino Fontana wrote. But that's, that's all I could. I was so disjointed by it. I, I wish I could have come to it fresh. On the other hand, if I had come to it fresh, I wouldn't have had all those decades of loving the original cast album of the roar, of the grease paint, the smell of the crowd. Um, by the way, when I talked to Nat, um, Leslie Bricus in um, the late 90s, when Jekyll and Hyde was uh, on his way to Broadway, he did Smile when talking about the <laughs> commercial uh, aspects of feeling good. And oh, he um, did. Yeah. yeah. And how we never expected that that was going to happen for they, they never set out writing saying, and, you know, this would be great for commercials. And um, yeah, and the first person to record it, by the way, was Lena Horne on the other side of the 45 of Pleasures and Palaces, the title song from the Frank <laughs> Lester musical that closed out of town, too. <laughs> and it, because she was recorded for the United Artists at that time, which had the cast album rights for pleasures and palaces, which, of course, never happened. But Feeling Good was the song that was played more during that period of time. It wasn't a top 40 hit. What was a top 40 hit was Who Can I Turn To? Mm. Tony Bennett had a recording of that, and it did make the top 40. And songs like A Wonderful Day Like Today and Mm. Nothing Can Stop Me Now were heard on variety shows during that period of time endlessly. Mm. But nobody paid attention very much to feeling good. And yet that's the song that has remained uh, in the public consciousness because, as Michael said, of all those commercials.
3: Well, I guess mr bricus 's smile spoke volumes, yes <laughs> indeed <laughs> uh, and what 's interesting about feeling good is the the lyrics um, are you know sound entirely positive. birds flying high, you know how I feel, mm-hmm. sun in the sky, you know how I feel, breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel it 's a new dawn it 's a new day, day. <laughs> it 's a new life for me, and i 'm feeling good i 'm feeling good, but if you hear gilbert price's performance from the cast album as you will hear as you heard at the top of this podcast it's very wistful uh, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. uh and as it says on the on the uh cast album notes uh the negro pours out the sadness and heartbreak of his frustration and feeling good so i'm i guess that was all about the staging and mm-hmm. the interpretation anyway uh that that uh is a is a great song that has been has become uh very familiar to us for its commercial uses aside from everything else uh and the musical moment that i chose to close the show is you and i uh Mm. from yes Mm. yes which Uh. was written for the movie uh goodbye mr chips and and then uh I know there was a stage, a later stage adaptation of the musical Mm -hmm. that played at the Chichester Festival Mm -hmm. with John Mills in the lead. That's right. I I didn't, actually check but i assume that you and i was was in the stage adaptation oh it would so. have to be
2: and uh, i'll add too that i think dr doolittle whatever the movie i'm not talking about the movie mm. that score i think is terrific there's not one song on that's um, dr doolittle that don't adore, and um i'll also recommend the london cast album of that show um which has a nice theatrical sound to it as well uh
3: so we uh I, I didn't have access to the the stage recording of Goodbye, Mr. Chips. And anyway, I thought it would be nice to use the, the soundtrack recording of this beautiful yeah. song, You and I, which I think really if the movie had been a hit, yeah, I, I think that that song would have become a standard. Sure, sure. Everyone I know loves mm-hmm. that song oh well,
2: absolutely it's My it's absolutely too. yeah it's mm-hmm. just
3: gorgeous and mm-hmm. so i thought we would uh have petula clark singing it because uh so we can honor her again uh, as a, one of our recent podcast guests along with mr brickus and by the way petula um i am told is now back on stage at the as the bird woman in mary poppins in london and her 89th birthday is coming wow. up in a few weeks in, in wow. case anyone wants to wow. commemorate that. So, here's to Pachula and here's to Leslie Brickus.
0: Mhm.
1: All right. So, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye.
3: Bye.
0: You and I will travel far together. We'll pursue our little star together We'll be happy as we are together We may never get to heaven But it's heaven at least to try You and I are going on together is gone together, watch the evening drawing on together, growing older, growing closer, Together. Till the time we have is gone together Watch the evening drawing on together Growing older, growing closer Making memories that